Awesome. Thank you guys so much. If you are elementary school age, you can head downstairs for some sprouts. You guys are going to have some fun down there this morning. So, hey, I just wanted to say, uh, start off by thanking the worship team because, you know, the, the cool thing about music is that it really speaks deep inside of us. It's just the way music works. God made us emotional beings and, and music is emotional. And so it's kind of fun to have God just speak into our lives. And the, uh, ooh, there you go. Guitar players, they're the worst. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but no, it's just so cool because the, the reality of those words, I think it's just so fun to be able to, to sing that over our lives and just remember who God is and who we are in Him. So thank you guys so much. And, and Giselle, thanks, man. I'm, I'm just saying, I hope when I get to heaven, God has an English accent because it just makes everything way cooler. So not going to lie. So keep it up. Appreciate it. So, um, but yeah, so hey, thanks so much to, to Dan the man uh, last week holding down the fort. And uh, how many of you were here last week? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I appreciate it. Um, so Nicole and I were out of town last night. Drew and Allie were actually out of town on the holiday weekend. And so uh, it was really fun to have him because I've been listening to his podcast for a while. So I was like, I wonder what he's going to be like live. And it, so it was, it was good. He did not disappoint. But, um, but I, just, I just am so thankful for that because um, this, this fall, honestly, like I'm going to be gone a little bit more because we have three kids a thousand miles away playing football. And so we want to go uh, take the opportunity to go cheer them on and be a part of that. So, so I really appreciate Dan and Rich and Drew kind of stepping up this fall. We're going to be gone a couple weeks and, and they're stepping in and, and just really appreciate that. Thanks for um, in, uh, allowing us and, and helping us uh, be a part of our kids' lives even uh, in, a, in a really cool, unique time of, of life for them. So, and for us, we're adjusting to it too. So anyhow, all right. Hey, every nation, every culture, every kingdom has its own currency, right? I mean, you think about what is valuable in a culture, in a nation, in a kingdom. You know, if you were to come to anybody in from the beginning of time up until, what, several years ago and said, okay, there's going to be this currency it's, it's, it's on the cloud. You can't touch it. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You can't really trade it other than just somewhere in their computer. And, and other people can kind of mine for it, um, and they're going to find it. Well, where do they find it? Well, just on, online. Well, what's that, right? Like, if you would have come to anybody in the history of the world up until the last few years and said, you know, cryptocurrency, they would say, you're crazy. That's, that's weird, right? Because it's always been things like Metals, gold, silver, bronze, or, or, or minerals like, like, uh, like diamonds, rubies, things like that, um, or, or pearls. Honestly, I was, I was doing a little bit of fun research, and it's sort of like, where does the, the phrase, you know, some clams, hey, give me, where's my clams, right? They literally used clamshells for currency in some cultures. And it wasn't just, it was like some indigenous people in, in North America, it was, it was in Asia. Um, honestly, up until the 1930s in, in California, there was some use of clamshells as currency, or even like bucks. Hey, that's a couple bucks, right? You know where that comes from? Pelts, buckskins. Like they would pay for things with animal skins, right? Like, can you imagine going shopping and sort of like, hey, deer, bring the, all the, the, the deer pelts, right? Like, it's just weird. Um, but, but we all have some kind of currency 
that represents what is really truly valuable to us. Well, we've been looking through Matthew about how Jesus is a king, and every king has its kingdom. So what is the kingdom of Jesus's economy? What's its currency? What does it hold as valuable? What really matters in the kingdom of heaven? This morning and next, next week, we're going to be looking at two different aspects of the economy of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to dig in this morning. It's kind of a longer chapter. We're going to read through some of it, summarize some of it. But join me in, in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 1. It goes like this. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, they just showed what their economy was, right? It's power, prestige, privilege, authority. That is what they're still operating from. They have been following Jesus for a couple years now, but they still are operating through, hey, which one of us, like, help us understand where we fit in the hierarchy of the kingdom of God, right? Like, they kind of show their hand of what economy they're still a part of. Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, says this. He called a little child to him and put the child among them. Now, we're kind of like, if I would call, we have some adorable, adorable kids here. If I would, if I would bring up these kids and say, bring the little children to me, right? You'd be like, oh, and it would be like that. In this culture, children were like varmints. Like, they had no rights. They weren't fully human yet, right? And so, like, they were, they were like, oh, a kid? Get them out of here. They're annoying. They're stinky. They're selfish. They're loud. They're just annoying, right? So Jesus, like, we read this in 21st century, like, oh, Jesus, you know, precious moments figurines and stuff like that, right? I have to explain to some of you what that is, but, but in, their, in their culture, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, come on, Jesus, like, what are you doing, right? But he says, he takes it even further, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He takes this unwanted, unloved, like, like I don't want to go too far with it, but basically he says, unless you become childlike, you don't have a shot of getting into the kingdom of heaven. If we think that we're going to go in because we're so special, we're so unique, we're so this and we're so that, like who could turn me down, Right? That's not valued in the kingdom of heaven. Now he says, be childlike, not childish. We need to clarify that, right? Don't, let's, we're not supposed to be childish. We're supposed to be childlike, humble, sincere, trusting, dependent. That's what children are. That's the essence of what it means to be a child, right? I love how um, a friend of mine, he would, he would say, if dependence is the goal, weakness is a virtue. A lot of times we like to deny, hide, excuse, like, like get rid of our weaknesses because it doesn't look good on us, right? But if dependence on Jesus is the ultimate goal, being childlike, then our weaknesses are things that we need to embrace. It's not just childish, but it's being childlike. Yeah, I messed up. I'm really sorry. Help me deal with it, right? And so, if dependence on Jesus is the goal, then weakness is a virtue. Then Jesus takes a little bit further in, in verses 5 through 7. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. 
But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrows awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrows awaits the, what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. Okay, there's a couple things here. Little ones. He's basically saying the little ones, the new believers, the people who are coming to me and are trying to get this whole new kingdom of Jesus thing figured out, right? I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to live my life for Jesus. I want Jesus to be the center of my life. That's what I want. But there's always temptation, right? There's things that come in and, and twist and corrupt and replace and think that they're going to complete or correct what Jesus is saying wrong. And so he's giving warnings against corrupting these vulnerable, impressionable, childlike new believers. Now, a millstone, you guys know what a millstone, right, is? There's, there's two different types of millstones. There's one that, that you use as a hand crank. That's it's a big, big old stone, right? Probably weighs several pounds, and, and that's not fun. The millstone that is, is in the word here, it, it, large millstone, means a donkey's millstone. Donkeys, these millstones would be several tons, and they would be pulled around in a circle by a donkey. Why? Because they weighed several tons. And he literally says, you would be better off with a several ton, several ton piece of rock tied around your neck and drowned in the sea than to corrupt the little ones of Jesus. Jesus isn't mincing words here. He's not messing around. He's basically saying, if you corrupt new believers, that's not a good thing. Be very, very cautious about doing that. Then he takes it even further in verses 8 and 9. So if, you're right, so if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for the entire, if for, uh, sorry, it's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both of your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better uh, to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Okay, if that sounds familiar, it should, because we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, right? And there he's saying individually, as a person, if I have things that are tempting me, I need to get rid of it. I need to radically eradicate my life from the things that are tempting me away from Jesus. But look at the context. He's now taking it from being a personal thing to being a community thing. He says, we are the body of Christ, and if part of our body is corrupting the rest of the body, we need to deal with it. This is where it gets crunchy, right? Because he says, what? I don't want anybody, any false teachers, to lure people away from Jesus. We need to deal with it firmly. These are people who are adding things to the understanding of who Jesus is, what the gospel is, what salvation is. These things will affect us. He's talking about the legalists of his day, right? Because the, the religious leaders were coming in and saying, well, Jesus, you don't quite fit our religious system, so therefore you need to leave. And Jesus says, I am the religious system. It's all been pointing to me. And if you're not going to turn to me, then your religion is just leading you to hell. And so he's being very, very blunt about getting rid of anything that turns people towards the religious actions of the day and missing Jesus in the process. He explains it a little bit more uh, in a bit, but we continue in verse 10. He says, beware, beware. 
that you don't look down at any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Now, it's kind of a unique verse because it's kind of like, do we have, you know, our own personal protective angels? Some people use this verse to say, yeah, we each have our own little protective angel that's, that's, that's with us and protecting us and things like that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to build a whole theology over one verse, but it kind of does say that these people matter. They matter to God. God knows who they are. And so we, we don't want to uh, do anything that would compromise the eternal destiny of any of these new converts, right? Now, if you kind of look in, in probably most of our Bibles, uh, chapter 18, verse 11, you see it? It's not there. It's in your footnotes. Why? Because, because the earliest manuscripts that we have of the book of Matthew does not have what was added in at verse 11. Actually, it comes from, um, comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 10, and it says, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. And, and a lot of scholars think that, that maybe a scribe or something like that was kind of like, why is he talking about that? Well, because Jesus came to save the lost. That's, so it kind of makes sense. I'm glad that they kind of put it in as a footnote, but they kind of maintain the integrity of the earliest scripts. It wasn't there, but yet, hey, remember, why is Jesus so worked up right now about saying, hey, if, you're, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. Why? Because he's saving the lost. He wants to do whatever he can to protect those that are childlike, which is us, right? Verse 12 through 14. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it's not my heavenly father. It is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Shepherds love their sheep. They don't, they don't, they're not sheep. They're not shepherds because they hate sheep. They're shepherds because they love the sheep, and they will sacrifice themselves to protect those that they love. And so Jesus is the good shepherd, right? He entrusts pastors and leaders and, and, and people to care for the sheep that he loves, and that's the attitude that we need to have, is we want to do what's best. As a pastor, it was very interesting because I, I you know, sense God's calling in the ministry, and I wanted to help why did I go into ministry? Because I wanted to make a difference like my pastor has made for me. The unfortunate thing is, is I've been a pastor for a long time, and I'm telling you a little industry secret is a lot of pastors don't like you. <laughs> they don't like people. It's sad. And I'm telling you, it was funny. I should have gotten this. I actually, someone sent me a, a, a gif this week, a meme this week. I always forget it's a gif or a meme. I don't know. Anyhow. Um, but, but it was sort of like, People said that ministry was hard. I don't think it's that hard, said Albert, age 22, and it was a picture of a really old man, you know? Sorry, it's, it's, it's morbid, hangman, gallows, pastoral humor, right? It's not easy because everybody's a critic. Everybody wants something but not willing to give something, right? Like, being a pastor isn't always easy. I love it. It's fun, but there are days that are hard because you're, sir, you're, you know, we're called to love, we're called to care, but the problem is, is it's so much easier to build our own kingdom, our own identity. We rely on, the, on our churches, our ministries to give us value and worth. We're sinful, broken people just like everybody else. 
Well, fortunately, I had some good examples, and I've also had some bad examples. And I've really tried to stay grounded in who I am in Christ and surround myself with people of integrity that hold me accountable. And so when I'm out of line, they're not afraid to say, hey, don't be a dummy, right? Like, don't, don't act like this. But Jesus wants people who can, can care for his sheep. It's, it's hard to do that sometimes, though, right? Um, but he, he talks about the importance of going after the one. The problem is, is that too often the 99 say, yeah, but what about me? What about me? It was kind of funny because when, when we planted Greenhouse 10 years ago, um, we had been here previously, and so we knew some people, some people knew us, and I remember being told all the time, hey, when you get things up and running, let us know and we'll come. And we're like, what part of missionary don't you understand? We are missionaries, and we are called to gather fellow missionaries for the, for the one. Well, here, it's the 99, Right? But I, it, was so, it was so interesting, it was so telling at how often people would say, well, I just don't get anything from it. What about me? What about this? What about this? Guys, we are called to live on mission. We are missionaries. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are salt and light. It's who we are at the core. But so often we want to consume. Why? Because then we can critique. Instead of saying, well, I don't really, I don't like this or like that, so I'm going to go on to the next, Right? If we're in this together as a family, we're in this together as a family, and we need to have a unified understanding of who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. And, and so here Jesus says, hey, leave the 99 for the one. The cool thing is, is that, is that a family that, that is on mission together, we all get something from it. If we exist for the one we're all in it together. We are learning. We are serving. We are, we are bleeding. We are crying. We are laughing together as a family on mission. We don't just sit around and just say, feed me, feed me, and then go our own way. It's kind of like, how, what are we going to cook? What are we going to feed? Hey, how can we serve? How can we? That's what it means to be, be the family of Christ, the body of Christ, the flock of Christ's sheep together. If God loves his sheep, we should too. If God loves his not yet sheep, we should too. He continues, and he gets super practical in verses uh, 15 through 20. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out his offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if you two, if, if two or... Sorry, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there amongst them. Okay, some of us have heard this verse before and seen it acted out in an appropriate way. Probably some of us have seen it acted out in a horrible way, right? This is used as a means to control, to condemn, to deny. It's my, it's me versus you. It's us versus them. It's inside, outside, right? We need to look at what's really going on here. Here's the thing, 
This gives us examples of how to handle conflict and discipline in the church. Notice the progression. It starts off one to one. If I offend Ray, Ray needs to come directly to me. Not go around to everybody else in the church or not to the church, as neighbors, as friends, people don't, aren't even a part of this, and say, oh my gosh, Jason did this, Jason did that, I can't believe it. Can you believe in building his case and gathering his posse to come and get me, right? It's not that. If, he has, if I say something or do something that offends him, he needs to come directly to me. And he needs to say, hey, Jason, when you said this, when you did that, it really hurt. Can we talk about this? And hopefully I can say, oh, I didn't even think about that. I am so sorry. Or, you know what? You're right. I was acting out of hurt. I was mad at you, and that's why I was mean to you. I was hurting, so I hurt you back, right? And we can come to an agreement on that. He just won me back. But if I'm kind of like, you know what, Ray? I don't care. Deal with it. You know? I don't care. Then he needs to go to one or two other godly people that are spirit-filled, mature in their walk, and say, Jason, we need to talk. Here's a couple other people that are respected. And, and this is not just me. We've talked about it. We want to talk about this, right? To have a safe place to where we can process together. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, so it wasn't just Ray having a bad day. He's like really serious about this. And I think, oh, maybe I should listen, right? If I now repent, he's won me over. But if I'm kind of like, you know what? Forget all you guys. This is me. I know better than you, Right? Then he goes to the church, not the community, not wherever else. He comes to the church and he says, hey, we need to talk about this. Jason, you probably aren't going to want to talk about this, but we need to talk about this. Now, all of a sudden, I have the choice. Am I going to listen to my whole family or am I going to insist on me? There's a progression here and it's intentional and it's built on repentance and restoration it's so important that we remember what this is actually about. It's not conflict avoidance. It's not chaotic. It doesn't feed into it. There's a purposeful approach. And then even the part about, what, well, what about, you know, cast them out like pagans and tax collectors? What's Jesus' heart towards pagan, pagans and tax collectors? Is it, you know what, you're a pagan, you're a tax collector, I never want to see your face again. No, who does, Jesus, who does Jason reach out to? They say Jason. Jesus. Who does Jesus? <laughs> there you go. It's such a Jesus complex. There you go. There you go. Who does, who, hopefully Jason does, but who does Jesus reach out to? The one. He just said it. That's the thing is that we should be brokenhearted if people don't repent and come back into community. We should be brokenhearted and moved with the same compassion that Jesus had when he looked at the crowds that were hungry and they didn't have food. He should, we should literally feel sick to our stomach because we are motivated about reconciliation. That's what he calls us to because that's his heart. He loves pagans. He loves tax collectors. He wants them to come back to him Instead of building walls, we should be building bridges. Yes, we do need to be smart. He just said, if there's false teachers that are leading people astray, remove them. But don't remove them and just say, good luck. We need to seek restoration and, and, and reconciliation however we can. And that's the last thing is that we need to remember that this whole process is geared towards repentance and redemption, not punishment and retaliation. That is the flesh. 
That is the flesh. But this kingdom has its own economy that's geared around repentance and redemption. Then in verses 21 through 35, Peter asks, well, okay, okay, you tell us to forgive. Well, how many times should we forgive, right? And it's funny because he says seven times. Now, there's some fun Jewish cultural things here because the Jewish law said three times, and then you're in the clear. So just forgive three times, and then if you still keep on offending you, then just say, you're dead to me, out of here. So P- Peter actually is kind of like, he's kind of a suck-up, right? He's kind of a kiss-up. He's like, seven times? That's twice plus one, and seven is the perfect number? That was genius, Peter. Way to go. And Jesus is kind of like, cute try, but try seven times 70. So I was, you know, so how many is that? 490 or whatever that is? is so, so I need to count 400, how, how many times that is? No, it, Jesus is basically saying, don't stop. You keep on forgiving as long as it takes. So then he goes in and tells this story, and, and he, I'd encourage you to read this later because it's, it's good stuff. But he tells a story about a king who has, he's kind of like, I'm going to settle up the debts with my servants. And he has one servant. And, and if you really look at the, the, the Greek here, it, this guy literally owes billions of dollars to this king. I don't know why he spent billions of dollars of the king's money, but he did, and it's time to pay up. And so he says, guess what? I'm going to throw you in prison because you owe me billions of dollars and he haven't paid me back. And so the servant gets on his hands and knees and he pleads and he begs and he says, please forgive me. Let me give me a chance. I'll earn it back. I'll earn it back. I'll earn it back. And, and so the king says, I forgive you. I forgive you. You're free, right? Great, right? But then the servant turns around, and the first thing he does is find another servant that owes him thousands of dollars. Now, thousands and billions is a big difference, right? But he finds the one who owes him a couple thousand dollars, and he says, he literally starts choking him, is what Jesus says. And he says, pay up. And he says, I can't. And so he throws him in prison. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that in this culture... If you were in debt to someone, they could literally throw you in prison. Well, how are you going to get your money back if someone's in prison? They can't work. What they would do is they would sell off everything that they had, including their own family, into slavery. This is how depraved it was. So if I owe money to you, well, babe, I hope you can work hard because I'm selling you into slavery, right? This is awful. But the, the first servant has no qualms about it my family's free, you owe me, right? And so Jesus says, you know what? You're in trouble because I forgave you, but now you won't forgive how I forgave you. And so it's, it's interesting in, in 18 verse 33, it says, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? And so he ends up throwing the servant into prison anyhow. It's symbolic of how Jesus forgives us. So who are we not to forgive others? Right? Who are we to not forgive others? Then in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus leaves the Galilee and he goes to the Judea. People follow him and he keeps on healing them as he had been over and over again. Verse, uh, sorry, chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Okay, 
Once again, the Pharisees come out of the woodwork to try to trick him by asking him a very nuanced question in the law. They weren't looking for answers. They were looking to trip him up and to get people to turn against him. And so they're quoting this law from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where, where Moses says, hey, if a man can divorce his wife if he gives her a certificate of divorce. Basically what that meant was if there was unfaithfulness there, it nullifies the commitment, right? And so in the, in the Jewish world, there was two, tra- two camps of thought here. The Shammai believed that that certificate was only permitted on unfaithfulness. So it's kind of like, just if you have problems, work it out. If there's unfaithfulness, well, maybe that can be excusable. Um, There you go. But there's also the camp of the Hillel, which meant it was okay to divorce. It was okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. If, If she looked at him wrong, if she embarrassed him in front of his friends, if she burnt his toast... If she didn't, you know, sweep under the under the, the baseboards, you know what? Get out of here. I'm going for another one, right? And that was the predominant camp of the day. So they come and they're kind of like, let's trip him up with that. And Jesus, Jesus, I, I love how Jesus kind of sees what they're trying to do, and he totally one-ups them. He says in verse four, haven't you read the scriptures? I think we need to remember just how Jesus probably said that. It's sort of like, haven't you read the scriptures? You're coming at me with Deuteronomy 24, but have you not read the rest of the scriptures? It says, they record from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Jesus goes back to creation. He goes, oh, that's cute. You're bringing the law at me. You want to go back to creation? You want to go back to when God created the creation, how he did? He made a man and he made a woman. He says, you know what? You're compatible for marriage. Get married to become one. That's how he designed them. Now they're quibbling about how to get out of what God created. They're fighting over trying to find loopholes and ways out. Well, how can I justify myself at the offense of others? How can I justify not forgiving a wrong that has been done against me? How big can that loophole be, right? And they're missing the point. The point isn't how to find a loophole to get out of what God created. The point is to figure out how to make what God created work. Now, I know this is kind of a a tricky thing because some of us are divorced. Some of us are remarried. Some of us have have experienced that. Some of us are having, like, like, I get it. I get it. This gets really personal. But instead of running away, let's look into what, this is not just saying, hey, just make it work, just make it work, just make it work. Verse 7 We're going to see a little bit of where Jesus is going with this. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. God sees the hardness of the people's hearts. He sees, hey, 
Sin is hard. We live in a broken, hurtful world, right? And we're going to hurt each other. And, and so he gives some concession there, but it still breaks God's heart when his creation is broken. We're missing the goodness of what he designed. Then the disciples chime in in verse 10. It says, Jesus' disciples said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. They're kind of like, man, this sounds rough. Maybe we just shouldn't even get married. And then Jesus says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this statement. He said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. He basically says, you know what? Marriage is great. God designed us for relationship. And I think one of the greatest relationships on earth that reflects our relationship that we're going to have with God in heaven is the two becoming one on earth, right? That's how he designed it. But he also says marriage doesn't complete us. Marriage can't become our God. Marriage is not the greatest good on earth. Our relationship with God is. Only Jesus can fulfill us, complete us, make us whole. I think in, in the culture, some religions, and even in the Christian church, there's this idolatry towards marriage to where marriage is the greatest, highest good. It is really, really good, and God designed it, but it was never meant to compete with Jesus. It was never meant to be the greatest good. I remember hearing a, a quote recently that heaven just wouldn't be heaven without my wife. I love my wife. She is the love of my life. And I really want to hang out with her in perfection in heaven together for eternity. I really want to. But if I don't, if, if we're not like hitched like we're here on earth, because the Bible says that we won't be given to marriage in heaven. If we get up there, I'm not going to be like, well, heaven sucks. <laughs> what does that say to, to God? We're supposed to be circling the throne of the creator of all things, worshiping him. And if we're so like, well, I don't want to worship you because I don't have my this. I don't have my that. Where is my heart? Where is, where is my real affection here? You see, God is at the center of everything and our family, our children, our spouses, our friends, our, our, our skills, our, everything is around that, but only God can be at the throne of his kingdom. Nothing or no one else can be at the center of that. And I think it's so subtle at how easy it is for things like marriage because God made marriage so good and so purposeful and so intentional. So Jesus literally says, for some people, it's better just not to get married and not to go into too much detail, but this whole thing of some people were born in a way that, they, that marriage isn't great for them. Some, and, and sometimes that, that's the way they're born. Sometimes that's a choice that, that others have made for them. And then other times it, it's a choice that we make ourselves. But he says it's not a death sentence. In fact, you can serve God with your whole life now. Singleness is a very legitimate calling in Christ. You want some examples? John the Baptist. I think he lived a pretty fulfilling life. Didn't end the way that we think would be good. But Jesus said... You did your job. Good job. Now I'll see you in heaven. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was single. He was the greatest missionary in the history of the world. He wrote half the New Testament, and he was single. I think his life was pretty dang good. And then there's this guy named Jesus who wasn't married, and he lived a very fulfilled life. 
You see, the too often we attach these idolatries to our lives that replace Jesus as center. Now, here's the cool thing is, is this is not bashing marriage. This is not bringing it down. It's just putting it in its place. Because once Jesus and his grace is in place in our lives, there's a great book that's called When Grace is in Place. You should check it out. There's copies downstairs. Please take it. But when grace is in the place of the center of our lives, everything else is freed up to operate as it was intended. Husbands and wives can become one, and instead of picking on each other and, and demanding from each other, now all of a sudden we are, we are Christ's hands and feet to each other because we want to represent our Savior, our, our children, our friends, our jobs, our hobbies, our, our leisure time, whatever it might be, is in the place that it needs to be because Jesus is at the center where he was always intended to be. If we're single, you know what? You got a lot more disposable time. You can do what you want to do. One of my really good friends that I grew up with, he, he, uh, his wife uh, died of cancer, and he's my age, and both of his kids went off to college. And I was like, Bob, how you doing? You doing okay? And he goes, I'm trying to remind myself that I can do what I actually want to do now. Like, I always did what I wanted to do, but I need to be intentional with what God wants me to be doing with my time. That's a pretty mature move. Because he's saying, I have all this time at my disposal. How can I invest it in the kingdom of God? God wants us to revel in the goodness of what he designed, not cannibalize it and tear each other down. Okay, so that's a lot, right? And there's plenty there to, to get us kind of worked up and everything like that, right? But what's the point? Remember, we're talking about what the economy of this, of this new kingdom is. Jesus' kingdom operates according to a different set of currency, a different set of standards, a different set of values. And this is it. The big idea. Jesus seeks redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Not regulation, retaliation, and rejection. What's more natural? What's easier? What's our gut instinct? I mean, when, when we are hurt, when we are offended, when we are, when we are down, and I'm preaching to myself, I did not want to do this this morning because I had to look in the mirror with this passage. When I am hurt, I get mad. I am fiercely loyal. When you break that loyalty, I, I want to attack because if you hurt me, I'm hurting and hurtful people hurt people. That's just natural for me. I want to regulate. I want to say, no, this is the rules that you have to play by. I want to retaliate. Well, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And if, and if I can't get evil, then I'm going to reject you, right? That's what's natural for us. Instead, we need to have the heart of Jesus that's about redeeming what's lost. We need to reconcile what's alienated. We need to restore what's broken. So look back, right? The disciples are fighting over who's the greatest, and Jesus says, be the most childlike. That's what I want you to be. People are cannibalizing each other over power and influence in the church. And Jesus says, get rid of that influence. Get rid of that temptation. 99 sheep say, what about us? And Jesus says, what about those who aren't with me yet? It's natural to attack and cancel those who hurt us, but Jesus says, do whatever we can to work for repentance and, and, and reconciliation first, and if that doesn't work, then remember that I'm about what's finding what's lost. 
It's natural to want to be forgiven. It's unnatural to forgive. Jesus says, forgive because I've forgiven you. It's tempting to look for loopholes um, and our ways out and ways of justifying and, and, and all that kind of stuff uh, for us to be and do what we want to do. But we need to be focused on who Jesus calls us to be and what Jesus calls us to do. See, being a disciple, following Jesus, is about reversing the standards of the world and replacing them with the economy of his kingdom, with the standards of his kingdom. John three sixteen and 17. You know, right? He loves the world that he poured himself out into it. That hurt. Can you imagine the process of going from being God in heaven coming into this physical world that he created? Can you imagine how much that hurt for him? And to be rejected, to be accused, to be talked about, to be condemned, and people were literally scheming to kill him. And what does he do? He goes like a lamb to the slaughter. He goes to the cross because he knows that's the only way that we can be fixed. That's the only way that we can find reconciliation. And then Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 8, right? He said, we need to have the same attitude of Jesus who even though he was God, he let go of that and he came into creation and he became a servant and he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That's the standard of the economy of God's kingdom. Instead of imposing our will on others, we need to seek Jesus' will. He's the king, so his word goes if we're truly followers of him. We want to seek after what he wants. Instead of promoting self at the expense of others, we need to sacrifice and serve and build and bless others around us. Jesus is overturning this works-based system to a grace-based system. Instead of working for salvation, we work from our salvation. Too often, as followers of Jesus, we live like we're losing. And I'm not talking prosperity, like, man, I just want more money in my bank account, right? I'm just going to believe it in, nah. We need to live like no matter what our bank account, no matter what people think of us, no matter what my job is, no matter what's going on in our lives, the victory's already been won. Even when it doesn't seem like we've won, we're winning, we've already won because we're with Christ. So, moving from knowing to doing, believing to doing, um, belief to action, do a systems check. Do a systems check. If we find ourselves tearing others down, resenting, holding on to what's wrong, if we, if we find ourselves... Um, uh, refusing to allow people to, to, to experience freedom, if we're promoting ourselves at the expense of others, if we're constantly trying to find loopholes to defend ourselves and excuse ourselves and to build our case, if, if we're constantly having the conversation outside of the conversation, if we're constantly withholding forgiveness and scrambling for power and prestige, we need to look at why. We need to look at, am I truly understanding the grace that was one for me on the cross? Am I living under the truth, the authority, the power of that grace? If I'm trying to still insist on my kingdom and I'm operating out of my economy, I need to ask myself why. 
I know that's a lot. I know that's personal. I know that's not really holding too many punches back. And I know that there's a lot of us, myself included, that don't really want to hear this. But it's the path to freedom. It's the way to experience the grace that Jesus won for us on the cross. We always say that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people alive. And I'm telling you, I can speak from experience. When I have been in seasons of unforgiveness, of anger, of, of, of bitterness, of control, of, of those things, I'm dead. I'm dead on the inside. I am not living out the grace, the life that grace can give. It really matters. It really matters when we're a family that lives out of that grace, when we extend that love, that forgiveness, that peace, that hope, that joy to each other. So that's what I want to encourage us, challenge us, invite us to this morning, is to do a system check. This week, as we find ourselves, as we hear ourselves, instead of just blindly going forward in the old economy, the old system, look at what we need to be doing in the new economy, the new system. The greatest act that made this redemption and res reconciliation and rest restoration possible was what Jesus did on the cross. And so this morning, we're going to close out by, by celebrating that sacrifice. We're going to do communion together. So if the band wants to come up, um, the way we do communion here is that it's an open table. If you love Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, if he is your savior and your Lord, your king, then this table's for you. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. It's simply an observance. It's a time where Jesus says, when you do this together, remember what I did for you. And so this morning as we sing uh, two more songs to close out, I just invite you to just know that Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. He shed his blood. His body was broken for you. He doesn't want to give a gift and then have it left at the table. He wants us to go and accept that at the table. And so this morning, if you've been a follower of Jesus for years and years and years, this is for you. If you're a new believer who, who maybe this is new for you, this is for you. If you are a not yet follower of Jesus and you're like, now is the time that I want to accept that, this is for you. Don't struggle under the system of the world any longer. Don't buy into the currency, the economy, because guess what? It's a dead system. It's a dead system here, and it leads towards death. Run to life. Accept the forgiveness. Accept the life. Accept the freedom that comes from the gift that Jesus gave up on the cross. I'm going to pray, and then if you want to come, you can come. You can dip some of the bread in one of the cups. And when you do that, just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want prayer, you can find me afterwards or find someone here. We can pray together. But I want to lead us right now. God, we just thank you so much. We thank you for the gift of your sacrifice. You saw the system of the world, the economy of the world, and you saw how broken, how messy, how chaotic it was. God, it's not how you created us. Help us to run to you for restoration, for reconciliation. 
Help us to repent, to turn away from the things that have enslaved us, that have trapped us in dead systems. God, I know it's a one-time thing, but it's also an ongoing thing because that battle sometimes still rages. Sometimes you set us radically free, and then other times you say, be childlike, be childlike. You need me. It's not always easy, but remember, you're not alone. God, we thank you for your love. God, if there's anybody here this morning that just needs to, to, to be specific, God, I pray that we can just be real, that we can repent, that we can lay whatever it is that we're struggling with from the old system down at the foot of your cross. God, we, we see these things. We, we lay them down. We leave them with you. God, when we're tempted to pick them back up, and to continue to think about it, to dwell in it, to let it have authority and influence over us, God, we, 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 we thank you for your authority that's bigger than that, of whatever's tempting us. God, help us to walk in your freedom. God, if there's anybody here this morning that, that hasn't yet made that commitment, that hasn't surrendered the life to you, God, I just pray that, that right now they can say, Lord, thank you for meeting me where I'm at. Thank you for loving me as I am. But Jesus, thank you for loving me too much to leave me there. God, I want to live my life for you. I want you to be my savior, to wipe out my past and to be my Lord, to determine my future. God, I want to live the rest of my life with and for you. God, we love you. We thank you for the power of your word and the fact that it's true. God, I pray that as we observe and celebrate what you did for us on the cross, God, I pray that it be a tangible reminder of just how much we, we, we mean to you. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.